Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome again for our regular listeners and welcome to our new listeners. Listeners, Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com and Mark, a bit of a shout out to our sponsors um, who help support us and give us a little bit of money to help supply, help keep us going. And that's um, our main sponsors are Microchips Australia and you need to jump in here, Mark. <laughs> you are running all that on your own. Chemical Essentials. Chemical Essentials and... Um, what's the uh, specialised animal nutrition? The Australian distributors of Oxbow and their wonderful products, herbivores. They're fantastic. And also, we do have a few individual sponsors who go to vetgurus.com and click on the link to support us. And it goes to our Patreon site, and you can give us a couple of dollars to help pay for our costs of keeping the podcast going. So that would be good. So there's our plug over, Mark. Um, I haven't got anything else to say, really. I think it's time to um, time to say goodbye to everybody, is it? Have you got anything you want to comment on, any chit-chat and anything of interest that you could um, – any pearls of wisdom? Pearls of wisdom. No, I think it's straight into the, uh, the, um, the articles that you've selected this week, Brendan. Oh, that is very punchy, isn't it, mate? Well, yes, my I just have one, and it is a um, well photography, um, one of our favourite topics. There, it is a um, the Lumix People's Choice Award competition for two thousand and twenty, which was held not not that long ago, and um, some great photos there, Mark. Um, and uh, you'll need to go to the website vetgurus.com and click on the link to have a look at those photos if you haven't already. And there's a few here, Mark, that um, are on the website, and a couple. Of, one of them is quite disturbing there. So, well, the first photo there I quite like, and that's called Station Squabble, and it is a picture that somebody's been sort of sitting or lying on the station of an underground station, and they're taking a photo of two mice, which look like they're having a bit of a fight there, um, and it. They're almost in silhouette. It's a fantastic photo there. I really like that one. Um, but the one that I find a bit disturbing, Mark, as far as these um, top wildlife photos, is the the matching outfits one, which was um, taken, by the look of it, was taken in Lebanon. And it is um, a snake being attacked, I suppose, is the... Um, basic way of describing it have you seen the mark these photos yeah, yes they're, they're i you know i every time you um introduce one of these photo competitions and this one is the um is the london uh natural history museum is that correct yeah oh, yep. yeah and um uh and they get a bit of a um the smithsonian mag magazine a number of other um top flight wildlife conservation you know, they spread the news, as it were, um, and um, and I, I I look forward to them immensely. They they always are inspirational. But I have I'm a bit like you. The, these are winners of the categories that I can see um, so far, they 
all of them are a little bit disturbing in their own way, and certainly the Jaguars having a go at, um, it looks like uh, boa constrictor of some sort, um, and uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it's, well, it's not a pleasant, I mean, I don't know that necessarily I want to be shielded from the the horrors of nature. I think sometimes the natural world has events that aren't pleasant, but I know it is disturbing. Well, the one that disturbs me the most, Mark, is the losing the fight, which is a, well, they're calling it an evocative shot, but it is a trained orangutan about to take to the stage in a boxing ring and it has the boxing gloves on and they've put little boxing shorts on it and it's sitting in the corner, you know, the blue corner by the look of things um, in the boxing ring and, yeah, um, you know, my yeah, I think if I were one of the judges, I wouldn't allow a picture like that to be um, to be entered there. Yeah, um, yes. So, um, nevertheless, it is a very technically it's a very good um, picture there. But um, I think the station squabble. The thing I liked about the little story that went with that station squabble, which is those those two um, those two mice there. Um, the photographer spent five nights prostrating himself on the station floor. Drawing alarmed looks from passerbys, <laughs> one of one of whom even jumped on top of him to administer CPR, assuming that he'd had a heart attack. Um, so yeah, I thought that was quite funny. Um, yes, so I like the, the 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 that particular photo with the um, squabbling um, rodents. That that sort of carries the theme of you know urban wildlife of wildlife um, fighting against the the um, encroachment of man's environment. Um, but the other one... I think you like the very last one. Do you like the last one? Yeah, that, that, uh, the, the last one of the um, Spot the Reindeer, that's a cracker. I would be... That, that's one um, um, that I would be very proud to, to even get close to anything like that. And that's basically... Well, it's white, isn't it, with with um, some reindeer sitting there in the background, but an, an amazing sort of contrasty shot there. And um, it's probably one of the few places in the world that you haven't been to, Mark, the archipelago of Svalbard. Svalbard. Have you been there? <laughs> Funnily enough, Kate's just uh, looking, the company that we went to Antarctica with uh, does trips to Svalbard. And, uh, yeah, so, so maybe I'll be able to tick oh, off yeah. in the very near future. <laughs> You're hopeless. What's your what's your news story, Mark? I'm talking about bees. I I cannot talk enough about bees, Brendan. I um, uh, the social insects um, they they um, uh, uh, blow my balloon up. I reckon, and um, they this particular one is talking about. Uh, um, um, the loss of bumblebees across, uh, particularly across Northern America, and it ticks all the major boxes. It uh, highlights the fact that um, that uh, they're excellent. The fu- particularly the the uh, bumblebees, they're quite large and fuzzy bees, and they buzz around and um, buzz fertilize many many types of wild flora as well as um, critical agricultural crops like tomatoes, uh, but their numbers are dropping, Brendan, and new research uh, suggests that it's not just um, one single thing. The total number of 
bumblebees is less than 50% of the number right now, less than 50% of the number um, in 1974. So that's a precipitous decline. And it's sort of even more scary in that this is a species that we depend on and their numbers have literally dropped by half. Um, so the um, the sorts of things that... Uh, the, the interesting thing about this paper is that rather than a single, you know, parasite or disease or virus, um, this paper catalogues the, the uh, complex uh, nature of climate chaos that the cornerstone um, factor in a whole bunch of, um, of uh, processes uh, is climate change. Um, and so the fact that the body temperature, the the, uh, the temperatures that these insects have to cope with um, for longer periods have, uh, have really changed the areas in which they've been able to survive and in certain areas they can't survive very well and die out. Um, and it does emphasise that um, particularly these bumblebees are cool uh, climate, you know, they're uh, specialists uh, at cool climate things. Um, it's interesting. Uh, we've got some uh, native Australian bees in a hollow log in our garden, and um, and our, these guys are, um, are, are, temp are tropical. You know, you know, they they much prefer the the warmer temperatures, and they really struggle with the um, with the cold. They struggle with all extremes, but they're so efficient at um, at uh, managing the temperature of the hive by, you know, um, by buzzing when it's cold to generate heat um, and by fanning the hive when it's really hot. So, but there is a limit to how much they can do this. And uh, the last five years, the hottest ever recorded in North America, um, and that uh, causes the insects to, to um, overheat and uh, compromises their ability to, um, to collect food for periods of time and so they uh, struggle to overwinter and of course the consequence of that is that um is that they're unable to pollinate many wild uh you know plants that depend on them but also uh crops and they i, I was particularly taken by um one economic measure of the contribution of uh, bumblebees in the u.s amounts to more than 15 billion dollars a year um to the u.s economy by pollinating crops so their absence is uh, no small thing and there is a little veterinary twist more specific veterinary twist. I think uh, we as vets should take more interest in uh, bees and honey production, uh, but there is a direct uh, veterinary link in one of the classes of drugs that um, we probably sell a fair bit of, the neonicotinoids, um, which are, um, you know, play a important role in flea control, um, but those pesticides become widespread and they are extremely toxic to all species of bees and they're incriminated as one of the contributing factors um, along with climate change to explain the decline of these bees. Yes, it's a, another very good summary of a um, disturbing trend or problem from National, National Geographic, Mark, and um, a shout-out to one of the researchers there, Dr Strange, uh, <laughs> if, who's the Chair of Entomology department in Ohio State University and um, we've spoken before about people's names or surnames and um, 
the sorts of and what's the word for it, Mark? There's a word for it if you end up in the in the actual um, profession that your name's related to or sounds like. Nominative determinism. There we go. I knew you'd have it on the tip of your tongue, there, Mark. And um, speaking of um, big words, Mark, let's get stuck into our main topic this week. Is a smaller word, and that word, and that's castration. Castration of unusual pets. And the reason why we've popped this one in here is that it is not an unfrequent question from veterinarians um, as far as um, vets sort of phoning up and saying, how do I castrate a rabbit or a ferret or a rat or a mouse or a, or a crocodile or a bird or a reptile? And um, I think it's something that um, it's taken as 140-odd episodes to get to, Mark, but I think it's an important one. And um, the aim, I think, with this particular podcast this week is to summarise things, what's different and what's the same about the approach to the castration of these particular unusual pets. And I suppose we should stick to the common species that we see in practice and the common questions we get, and I'm sure you do get these questions, Mark, and maybe we kick off with the mammals, and we'll talk about surgical castration, obviously, but we may touch on a little bit about hormonal castration or hormonal reproductive control as well, and whether or not we use it in some of these species. And, um, you know, probably the common ones I get questioned about, Mark, is how to castrate a rabbit or a rat or a mouse or a guinea pig, are they the ones that you get questions from your colleagues, Mark? Yeah, regularly, particularly rabbits. It's a, um, you know, though the the rabbit is quickly becoming in in our part of the world the um, one of the more common. It's almost slipped from um, unusually exotic into the standard small. Uh, companion animal category. There are so many people that have rabbits these days, um, but as a direct consequence of those um, large numbers, and particularly because they respond so well, um, like their behaviour does change with the changing levels of um, testosterone, that it becomes a very important thing to get done. Um, and so we do get uh, uh, lots of questions about rabbits. Yes, and we won't go into the anaesthetic protocols of these species because certainly that is one thing that can be a lot different than if we're castrating a more commonly um, seen small mammals like our dogs and cats, Mark. So we'll leave the anaesthesia, but we'll talk about the surgical technique of these. And my first comment would be that there are several different ways of doing it. There's open castrations, there's closed castrations, and I don't think there's any, even though I certainly have a strong preference for doing an open castration and closing the inguinal ring with rabbits because they have an open inguinal ring. Um, apart from that, um, um, I, I don't think, and everybody gets good at what they do commonly, don't they, Mark? So um, I think it's incorrect if we say do it this way and don't do it that way. Um, but we'll talk about the tips and the tricks of, of how we as individuals deal with the castrations of the rabbits that we see, Mark, and I'll kick off with, I tend to do a one sort of high scrotal or pre-scrotal incision and um, from that one incision I managed to milk both of the testes in to do an open castration. Do you do that technique? I do indeed. Um, I uh, um, When I first started doing it, uh, it was a 
sort of recommended that we worked with a closed castration. I found that very difficult to do when I first started doing it. I would often, um, you know, partly open the the tunic and and get myself all anatomically mixed up. And I found it much easier once I'd deliberately go in, make that uh, generally pre-scrotal uh, single incision and and um, get the the uh, um, testicles into that location and and uh, and do and open up the tunic where it does seem to orient me much better. The other trick I found when I do that is um, that um, because of the open inguinal canal, um, it it's um, uh, particularly if the rabbit might be at the lighter end of anesthesia, those. Uh, testicles could be drawn up into the abdomen relatively easily and so it's always good to to maybe tip the rabbit just very slightly so its head's up and there's some abdominal pressure on the caudal abdomen. That also frees up the chest a little bit to, to make uh, ventilation a little bit easier. So um, setting them up in that position and getting the, the as you said, milking the testes into the, the uh, um the location of the pre-scrotal incision. Good first tips, Brendan. And I think that's often one of the trickiest aspects of doing the castration is sort of hanging on to those slippery little suckers and, and keeping them um, keeping them um, confined um, while you make that incision. I tend to do sort of one pretty bold incision um, pre-scrotally there, but it's only about half a centimetre or so um, into that first testy and then identifying the bits that are there, um, doing an open castration um, like I would, well, doing doing the pedicle um, tie-off like I would do in a dog or a cat um, and we end up or I end up with two two sutures, so one's on the pedicle um, and then I identify the inguinal ring, which is actually quite easy to identify, um, and I place a suture over that as well. Um, and I don't put any more suture material in there, Mark. I just have the one one suture on the, the pedicle, which then retracts into the into the ab- abdominal cavity, and then one on the inguinal ring. And then I just use a tiny bit of tissue glue after I've done that second side, um, and that's that's my technique. And I think the trick or the tip with using tissue glue, and I know we've stated this before, is only using a tiny bit um, because it is very tissue toxic if we let it leak into the subcutaneous space or, or deeper. Um, and the whole aim of the tissue glue is to just oppose the skin edges there. And the same as any closure of the skin, it's opposing the edges. We're not trying to stop everything falling out. Um, we're trying to oppose the edges so they can they can heal with time. Um, any other any other tips or trips tricks, Mark? Well, the 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 key one you've already hit on. If you put too much glue on, I find um, it's just a real unprofessional look when you're stuck to the rabbit and the pre-scrotal <laughs> yeah. incision, and then you get your fingers stuck to the scrotum, and you're you're trying to disassociate yourself, and you always end up with a little bit of scrotal fur on the the um, end of your your finger, your gloved finger. Where and it's um, never a good look if you're heading off for dinner after um, after you've done the castration, Mark, in the afternoon. The other thing um, that um, that I was going to ask you about was um, the ligament of the the 
testis, it, uh, the testicle attaching to the scrotum, um, in, it tends to break down really easy in our re- really easily in our uh, more common species, but particularly in a, um, uh, a an adult male rabbit, um, geez, it can be hard to separate. Do you have any tricks for separating the testicle from the the um, the gubernaculum? Is it the gubernaculum? I think um, got it. I think it might be. Um, if it isn't, then um, I stand corrected. Um, I just tease it away with a, a pair of hemostats or the needle drivers, Mark, um, and I'm just just bluntly dissecting it or tearing it away um, with the forceps or needle drivers rather than using um, a pair of scissors. Um, and, yeah, it can be quite tough, that attachment there. Um, but, no, I think it's just persistence and... and um, I prefer sort of a blunt trauma approach to that because I think it's more likely to um, help with sort of cautery if you did have any vessels there, which you shouldn't in that particular. It's a fibrous band, isn't it, um, that's attached? But I think you have hit the nail on the head. I think the... The um the times where I've been less fastidious and and in a rush and just trying to um get through it quickly, it is there are some blood vessels despite the fact that it's mainly a connective tissue band and um and some of those uh, um, scrotum full of blood uh, post operative cases I think are um, directly because um that blunt dissection was not as blunt as it should have been. And the other tip which is a hard one to describe in a podcast, Mark, is I always break down the scrotal attachment to the testy. Um, and there is sort of almost like another little ligament, and I'm not talking about the gubernaculum, um, that um, if you break that down, it's a fibrous sort of band because when you exteriorize that um testis often the the scrotum will invert into the surgical field there and it's breaking that attachment down and then um everting that scrotum back out um and it just then sits much nicer um and it's one less thing um that i think um means that um the animal's not going to have any pinching sort of effect there um because we've sort of broken it down there and it's um sitting back out as the way it should but it's a bit of a tricky one to describe in a podcast mark um i have a series of slides on that um that i if i ever do a presentation on it um i i, I show um, pictures and a video of that um because I think um, it leads me on to the final thought with all of these um, castrations is the, in my opinion, the most common reason why any of these small mammals would potentially um, chew out or self-traumatise is, is inadequate pain relief, which is something we rabbit on about, so to speak, Mark, um, very often. And um, it's pre, peri and post-surgical um, um pain relief with them is really important um, that's the most important bit rather than what surgical um, suture you used or whether uh, some people even use um, staples for external skin um, um, sutures in in some of these small mammals which i don't don't um, recommend at all because I, I i worry about them ingesting it and i also worry about the fact that it does really pinch in that area and they're more likely to chew at it um, so pain relief is an extremely important part of the process of of preventing any post-operative complications and um, we rarely get any post-operative complications with our um, castrations of our small mammals 
So tell well, I'm 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 not the same as you in this regard, Brendan, because um, guinea pigs. I often get um, post-operative complications, um, probably due to my poor technique. So what are your tips to make sure that I don't get those in the future? Ah, okay. So you're talking about what, um, scrotal um, abscesses? <laughs> yes. How did you oh, guess? How, how did I guess? Be- that's probably the most common problem that people have with the castrations of guinea pigs. And I think, and we we... I must admit we have had a few of them, Touchwood not for a while, um, um, meticulous um, care with the actual castration and um, being careful that we don't have any contamination. Um, and I think what happens there um, with some of those, the possibility that you have um, bacterial contamination there um, when you're when you're trying to um, do the actual castration, you're having some some feces um, sort of contaminate um, the surgical field there. I think I'm fairly meticulous with trying to prevent that that um, happening when I'm doing it, um, Mark. Um, I know um, well, it's interesting that you say say um, that particular problem because um, at one stage I was using. Um, staples um like eclipse like the hemoclips um to close off the pedicles of most of my castrations for small mammals um and i stopped doing it um because i did have a couple of and i think they were both guinea pigs that developed scrotal abscesses this is many years ago um and i thought that maybe it's the fact i'm leaving bits of metal in there um and i think it was more my technique rather than that I was using the um, logo clips with them. But um, so, since then, I haven't, haven't used the logo clips and I just tie them off. So when you, um, uh, when you talk of fastidious technique, you're just talking about ensuring that you're, um, you're excellently draped and if there is the, you know, guinea pigs when they're anaesthetised will occasionally pass a pellet or whatever, you've just got to make sure that can't get anywhere near your um, surgical yeah. field. And you tend to concentrate on doing the actual castration and, and, and you don't look at the um, base of the surgical field there where the, you know, where the rest of the um, perineal region is and, and, and a little bit of gunge and that so, can sort of creep up there. What I tend to do these days is uh, um, before I, I, I use the clear plastic drapes and I just cut a little appropriate sized hole in there because they're great for seeing the whole animal as, as we're doing the surgery. But it, before I put that drape on there, I have some surgical um some um some swabs on some swabs some swabs from the kit um from the sterile kit that i place both above and below um the surgical um incision site um then i put the surgical drape over that so it's sort of another added layer of protection to try and mop up any gunge or or any feces or anything that's going to get into that surgical field um so it's a simple thing but i think it it it's certainly helps but yes um so the longer answer or short answer to your my long answer to your short question is that yes um it, it's not unheard of um the the scrotal abscesses in guinea pigs yeah so what about um the precise like um the location of your um incision in guinea- yeah so in in guinea pigs i tend to do two, two incisions um both 
um, high scrotal or pre-scrotal, so one on each side. Um, I'm a little bit reluctant to do um, a midline um, incision with guinea pigs because I have found or I do think there is an increased chance of um, developing the pig developing paraphimosis post-operatively so that the um, the, the little cremaster muscle or, or, or whatever it is that... Um, keeps the um, penis in um, is damaged or the or the nerve so you end up with a penis that partially prolapses post-operatively so I I prefer to play it safe and do pr- two pre-scrotal um, sort of half a half a centimeter um, do you do one or, or two I know, the same reason try and avoid the midline and and uh, um, maybe even you know go slightly um, more laterally so that um, as the guinea pig trundles along and scrapes its butt on the ground, that they're not right in the firing line. Those incisions. Yes, so we're we're similar, and it's an open castration that I perform on guinea pigs, and identify the inguinal ring as well, um, like I would be doing in the rabbit, um, and I presume you'd do the same. When, so when you identify, like um, we probably are doing it the same, and it's difficult to describe in a podcast. When you identify the inguinal ring, how how like it's it's a, um, you know, the potential space that the the um, testicles can slide up into the abdomen, the 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 tube. The do you, do you are you identifying it from within the tunic and grabbing bits of the wall and tying it off? Are you circumferentially ligating the the inguinal ring above the? I'm just t- tying it off with, um, yeah, just just clamping it and tying it off. I sometimes have to dissect it out a little bit, um, and it almost looks like a band of almost looks like a band of muscle, doesn't it? I mean, in a guinea pig to a certain extent, that inguinal ring sort of opening, um, yeah, and just um, using a, a usually a pair of curved hemostats there, and then tying tying off that way. Yeah, we're just with one suture. Um, Sometimes with guinea pigs, I will do one subcutaneous suture if it's a um, an older guinea pig, a mature guinea pig, um, and then the tissue glue closure, like I would do in the rabbit. And um, do you find that um, like the, the the inguinal canal extends a little way from the scrotum, um, and as you said, you dissect it out. Do you, are you aiming to? Because um, I always used to worry that there would be. Um, you know, a little finger. If I just did the um, the the uh, ligature, you know, right in the middle of my surgical wheel, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, and that 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 pocket might then provide that we might not actually have a herniation, um, but we might still get something stuck in that um, finger-like pocket of the uh, inguinal canal. Do you? How high do you aim to to um, get your uh, ligature? Yeah, good point. Not, not particularly high is, there, is that mark, and and I think that's where and we'll have to have. We might end up having this as a two-parter, I think. But um, I think that's why some people go for abdominal um, abdominal castrations. Um, is is sort of the flavour of the last few years with some of the exotic vets where they um, do an abdominal incision and, and they remove the just um, remove the testicles like we're doing a a, um, a cryptorchid um, surgery. Um, and um, some vets 
um, think that that's probably a, in the long run an, an easier technique or a less likely to have any of these sorts of complications because we're not dealing with that scrotal region at all, Mark. Um, so it's not something that I've really um, got into or, 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 or thought about trying. Um, yeah, have you have you done any abdominal? castrations only, and only the ones that are genuine crypt orchid I, it's not something that i've moved into uh um to routinely doing but it does have um like you said it uh, does have a couple of uh, i don't know that i'd automatically think it was less complicated surgery and i and i have a morbid absolute morbid fear of entering the abdominal cavity of guinea pigs at the best of times um, and while I'm technically you know within that body space when I muck around in the scrotum just doesn't feel nearly as dangerous so I don't know that I'll be adopting those techniques anytime soon. Yeah so you know, guinea pigs can be a little bit of a challenge I think of all these species that we will talk about and I think what we'll do we'll cover We'll cover the other small mammals and touch on the reptiles and the, the birds and the other exotic pet castrations in, in part two, Mark. So we'll just stay with guinea pigs and rabbits um, in this podcast. Um, so, um, yeah, it's pain relief as well. But, um, yeah, you've made me have a – I'm going to be on a bit of a mission now um, with with the um, thought about how high I, I close that inguinal wing. So I'm assuming well, that, that you actually take them up fairly – no, no. Yep. Well, see, I, I've I've have panicked, and and I think I actually cause more tissue trauma by trying to to get way up at the um at the uh, most proximal part of the canal. But I actually don't know that it makes like I can't tell you. I've got a uh you know a whole bunch of cases where I I've done it in the mid part or the distal part of the canal, and um, then I've ended up with um, complications. Um, I I I just um. You know, we have the fear of everything that's bad put in our minds thinking about these inguinal canals. But I think if you're just um, uh, reasonably sensible without being overzealous, that you can ablate most of the problems. And and, uh, and I don't know, yeah, I just don't know how dangerous it is to, in, uh, you know, in where you put that uh, encircling ligature. But like you said, just as far up as is comfortable is probably the way I would describe it. Yes, and one of the reasons why we highly recommend desexing the male guinea pigs is not just because of the obvious um, breeding aspect or the behaviour fighting aspect, it's because of the incidence of faecal accumulation in the rectal or anal region in entire male guinea pigs mark and i'm so sure you've seen this many times so if we have a geriatric entire male guinea pig there's a high likelihood he, he will have a almost like a dilated anus and um, feces that are just sat there that don't quite get out and um, we end up with clients that have to commonly um frequently um clean out the bum of their guinea pig and desexing these male guinea pigs at a very young age of, of only um, several months of age um, dramatically decreases the chance of developing that condition as they get older so it's a hormone related sort of condition so I 
presume you you see that and you recommend it because of that to clients as well, Mark. Is that correct or am I totally wrong? (laughs) It's a very, very common consequence of uh, remaining entire as a guinea pig to end up with what what our um, our, uh, local guinea pig people call boar butt. Um, and uh, and it does um, become quite tiresome um, uh, gloving up every day or two and scooping out the uh, compacted uh, contents of the dilated terminal rectum. Um, so it's a um, they only have to have one one of their guinea pigs get that, and it's pretty easy to convince them to dissect them after that. Yes, good. Well, I'm glad we agree on. Bore butt, Mark, and um, I think we'll leave it there for this week, Mark, on bore butt, and we'll cover part two next week. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.